I'm a sucker for what I would call apocalyptic disaster movies. I think you kind of know the kinds of things I'm talking about. Day After Tomorrow, about the, the rapid uh, depletion of the polar ice cap causing a, an early kind of rapid ice age, I'm there. I'm going to see it. Uh, 2012, about the Mayan calendar, remember that deal? Being a real thing. Uh, tell me when and where. Uh, a book like or a movie like San Andreas uh, about a swarm of earthquakes uh, that devastate California, you know, shut up and take my money. I I'm going to go and see movies like that. They're impossible for me to resist. But I want you to think about what they all have in common. Apart from the end of the world, what do they all have in common? Honestly, what they all have in common is absolute absurdity. The melting of the polar ice cap will not disrupt the North Atlantic circulation causing an ice age. The Mayan calendar was a myth that took life via the internet. And San Andreas, well, I'm going to admit to you, I, I looked this up. Because if you've watched these movies, at some point you pull out your phone and say, could this really happen? So I, I did look this up. And according to the American Geosciences Institute, the movie is based on geologic nonsense. So we're, we're safe there. But it's all, it's all okay that it's nonsense because it's harmless fun. It's about popcorn and a few hours of escapism. That said, the end of the world isn't an absurdity. One of the core beliefs of Christianity is that Jesus Christ will return to the earth visibly and bodily, and when he does, the world ends. And there is a new heaven and a new earth that is given to us in its place. And because we believe in the absolute certainty of an expiration date on this universe, there are facts in Scripture that we believe you can know about the end of the world. Unfortunately, most of what has passed is popular Christian discussion on the topic of the end in our lifetime has actually existed in the realm of absurdity. The Left Behind series has as much to do with the actual teaching as Scripture as the day after tomorrow does with climate science. The book uh, may be entertaining, the book series may be engrossing, but you aren't really learning biblical facts in reading it. The book The Harbinger has as much to do with the actual teaching of Scripture as 2012 does Mayan archaeology. It may, again, be entertaining to read, but you aren't really learning biblical facts about the end of the world when you do. And here's the deal. I think that the conspiratorial absurdity being shared on social media and in dark corners of the internet today is the direct result of the absurd way we look at the end times, and it has existed for uh, a long time in the conservative Christian world. So one of my real goals with this series is not to make sure people believe like I believe. Frankly, that is nowhere on my radar. It doesn't matter to me that you wind up reading the book of Revelation like the slice of Christianity that my teaching represents. I, I, who, who cares? 
I mean, we're all going to be wrong about this thing in the end anyway, aren't we? I mean, we just are. I don't care whether you believe like I believe here, but I do want to help our church know how to separate fantasy from reality on the subject, the very real and very important subject of the end of the world. And we begin that goal in earnest today as we look at Revelation chapter 6. I hope you found that in your copy of God's Word. Would you stand, please, as we honor its reading, Revelation chapter 6. Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And, he, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. And he opened a third seal, and I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over the fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence by the wild beast of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word, and you may be seated. The Tuesday before Christ Friday crucifixion, Christ's disciples asked Him a question that we can imagine ourselves asking Christ. When will the end of the world take place? And how will all of it go down? And Christ's response to their question, is a package of teaching called the Olivet Discourse. Matthew includes a record of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. Mark includes a record of the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13. Luke includes uh, a record of the Olivet Discourse in, in Luke 21. But the Gospel of John, the same John who is credited as being the author of the book of Revelation, 
does not include the Olivet Discourse or the question at all. And so the question is why? And frankly, folks, it's anybody's guess. But here's mine. I believe he actually does deal with the Olivet Discourse. It's called the book of Revelation. In fact, I would argue that the backdrop against which God projected the visions of the end for John was the teaching of the Olivet Discourse. At the risk of vastly oversimplifying things, the Olivet Discourse teaches three distinct periods of time. The time leading up to the end, the time of tribulation that we sometimes call the Great Tribulation, and then the actual return of Christ. Now again, at the risk of vastly oversimplifying this, I believe Revelation 6 forward teaches us about those same three periods of times identified by three distinct visions of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. The seven bowls dealing with the judgment accompanying the actual return of Christ. The trumpets dealing with that time period known as the tribulation. And the seals dealing with the time leading up to the end. In other words, I believe the seals about which we just read are about the time leading up to the end and are not a description of the end itself. Now, I want you to listen how Jesus described that time period leading up to the end in Matthew's record of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, starting in verse 4. Jesus answered them, saying, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are but the beginning, the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. You certainly hear, I think, the clear echoes of those verses in Revelation chapter 6. I do. I hear them clearly. That's why I believe Revelation 6 corresponds to the part of the Olivet Discourse that I just read. Now, one last thing. The part of the Olivet Discourse I just read was very clearly addressed to what the disciples should expect to experience in their lifetime in their world, not in the distant future. He was telling them that in their world, they should expect to see wars and famines and earthquakes. But these things were but labor pains showing that the end was on the way, but not the end itself, which leads me to conclude this. That Revelation 6 shows us the conditions that have reigned in creation since the ascension of Christ and continue in our world today and will continue until that time that Christ returns. And from that, I glean three facts about the end of the world 
which all of us can accept, even if you think what I've just said to you is hogwash. First, the world is bad, and it will get worse. This is going to be a happy sermon. (laughs) We see this in the unsealing of the four horsemen. Each is unleashed at the command of one of the four living creatures. And if you were here a few weeks ago, you will remember the four living creatures are introduced in Revelation chapter 4 and are representative of the created order. So these four horsemen characterize conditions that are unleashed on the created world. Now, there is no debate at all among Bible scholars as to what is represented by the three final horses. The rider of the red horse represents war. The rider of the black horse represents famine. The rider of the pale horse, or maybe in your translation, the green horse represents death. All things present in the world, all things that Jesus said would uh, continue to exist in the world, and are representative of the pain that is coming with the end, but not the end themselves. There is debate about that first horse, however. Who is, what is, what does it represent when we see the rider on the white horse? And the debate is pretty far-reaching. I do not want you to think that I have the answer for all of Christendom for what the white horse represents. But here is my opinion. If I'm using the Olivet Discourse as my reading glasses for Revelation 6, I'm seeing the rider of the white horse as representing that satanic deception that he spoke of that is going to draw many people away from allegiance to Jesus. Jesus said, many will come in my name, appearing to be a conqueror, appearing to be a king, appearing to be a Messiah, and will deceive many. Thus, the rider of the white horse, I think, represents what has already been dealt with in the book of Revelation, the false teaching and the false teachers that are plaguing the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Now, this kind of spiritual satanic deception is present today with secular humanism on the religious left and Christian nationalism on the religious right. Both end up with the corruption of who human beings really are at their core and teach a corrupt version of who Jesus is. So the world in which we live is and always has been one of spiritual deception and of war and of famine and of death. Jesus says that. The visions of John underscore that. And it will only get worse. Jesus says that. The visions of John underscore that. And the only thing that should surprise any of us about any of that is that we would be surprised at all by it. God's people living in this world, a world that is in opposition to them because of its opposition to Christ, will be afflicted, sometimes unusually so, by these forces, which leads us to the next fact we see here about the end of the world. The church is persecuted, and it will get worse. Look at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. 
who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now, I want you to remember the words of the Olivet Discourse. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Disciples who want to know about the end of the world, this is what you can expect until it comes, he says. Tribulation, persecution, even death. Jesus told his disciples to expect it. And those who are pictured in the unsealing of the fifth seal have indeed experienced it to its full measure. These people who had lost their lives for the sake of the gospel cry out to God to act. They cry out to God to vindicate himself by vindicating his people. And how they are answered must not be overlooked. How long? How long, God? And God says, until everyone who is going to die for me has died. You see, he says, it's going to get worse. Those numbered for martyrdom had not yet been completed. There's an ongoing academic debate about how to define martyrdom, believe it or not. And it hinges on defining martyrdom by the motive of the one who does the killing and the motive of the one who has been killed. It's the difference between someone taking your life because you are sharing the gospel, sharing biblical truth with them, and someone who maybe has surrendered their lives to ministry and has gone overseas for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ and died because of disease or, or maybe even a car wreck. That's where the debate is. So you see some wildly different numbers about how many people have been martyred for their faith year to year. But what we can agree on, regardless of definition, is that thousands and thousands of people die each year as a direct result of their obedience to Jesus Christ worldwide. They just do. Now, the likelihood of that happening to anyone in this room or your children or anyone else you know is infinitesimally small, but not zero. Could it happen? Yes, of course it could happen. If I take this book seriously, and I do, it will continue and will worsen and may someday even affect some of us in this room. Last night, I was holding my granddaughter because she needed to be held and she loves me. And as I was looking into her face, making her laugh, it occurred to me, she lives a normal life. She will be alive in the 22nd century. And I had a moment. And then you think, what's the 22nd century going to be like? I have no idea what kind of world she's going to live in. None whatsoever. I don't know what will be demanded of her. But I do know that persecution of the church will continue. I do know that it will get worse. But here's the thing. God's saying not yet everybody who will be martyred has been martyred is another way of saying no one will be martyred who I've not appointed for it. It's easy in times of persecution and trial to think that God has lost the plot, that the, the persecutors have all of the power and we see here in the unsealing of the fifth seal, they do not. God has all the power. God has all the authority. And when the moment has come where the last martyr has shed their blood for Christ, then he will 
respond. Which leads us to the breaking of the sixth seal where things start to get better. We learn there that the Lord will act and it will be devastating. The ultimate answer to the prayer, how long with the breaking of the fifth seal, is what we see take place with the breaking of the sixth seal. Look again at verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Now, it might be helpful for me to kind of jump in here and speak to something that has no doubt been troubling some of you as I've taken you on my little personal journey through Revelation chapter 6. I've been working under the assumption, sharing it with you, that the seals represent the present age and our lives as we grow closer and closer to the time of the end. And maybe you've been willing to entertain this so far. You say, well, you know, he's been my pastor a long time. He's essentially harmless. I'm just going to entertain him right now. I'm going to go with this. For, for him right now, and, and maybe you have wondered why I didn't talk about the cost of wheat and barley and the availability of oil and grape juice, I mean wine in verse 6, or why I didn't talk about the death of the fourth of the earth in verse 8, and you've let it go because you think, well, you know, maybe there have been some times of famine where prices have reached those points, or maybe, you know, like in the Black Plague of the Middle Ages, that many people, a quarter of the earth died. As a matter of fact, there have been two different instances of Black Plague where scholars estimate one in 500s, one in the 1300s, that up to half of the world population died from that plague. So you're willing to say, okay, well, I mean, that's happened. I can see it. But then we get to verse 12, and you say, okay, you've lost me. I know the sun has never turned black except momentarily in an eclipse. I know the moon has never turned red except momentarily in an eclipse. And the stars have never fallen from the sky. And the sky's never rolled back like a scroll. And you're right. Those things have never literally happened. But remember, these things in Revelation 6 and the rest of the book are symbolic of reality, but not literal representations of reality. So, so the cost and availability of what is needed for sustenance is just meant to illustrate the ongoing presence of scarcity in our world and it growing worse. An allusion to a quarter of those dying on the earth is meant, I think, to indicate the limits that God has established for death. Not everyone's going to die. There will not be a time where everyone is, is removed from the earth by death. Yet, he set the limits for that because God has said it will not be so that everyone dies. I think to read the book of Revelation consistently, you have to read the symbols as representations of reality and not a literal representation of reality. And I think most of our problems in reading the book, most of our confusion in reading the book, is the result of our inconsistency in applying that truth. For instance, I know of no biblical scholar that believes that breaking of the seals one through four means that a literal horse is going to go galloping across the sky. 
Somebody say, well, did you see that? Catch what color it was? I need to set my eschatological watch so I know what's going on. No one believes that. But then for no reason at all, in the same vision, we suddenly say, well, that's got to be literally applied. We all know the horsemen are symbols of something. So why do we make the symbols literal manifestations in the rest of Revelation 6? If we read consistently, we understand that this idea of a, of a moon going or a sun going black and a moon turning red and stars falling from the sky and, and the sky being rolled back as a scroll represents something. And what it represents is God answering the prayers of his people. How long till you judge those? who have scorned your name and slain your people. How long the sixth seal breaks and God is saying, how about now? Because you see all of the images at the end of Revelation chapter 6 are direct lifts from the images that we see in the Old Testament meant to communicate the cataclysmic day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment. And the reason that I know that those are not meant to be literally applied to the cosmos in our lifetime is because those same images are used in, for instance, the book of Isaiah to announce the death of an Assyrian king. No one saw those things happen. They're just images meant to communicate an undoing and an unspooling of the world. So as we labor here in a world filled with spiritual deception and war and famine and death and persecution... It is a very natural thing to say, God, when are you going to do something? And the encouragement of Revelation 6 is that the prayers of God's people will not go unanswered. We are experiencing the labor pains of the final event in human history. And there will definitely come a point where God rises to judge. And the statement made in verse 17 is that when he does, who can stand? It's a rhetorical question. Meant to communicate that when he rises to judge, no one will be able to stand. No one. All right, someone. No one will be able to stand before the Lamb unless the Lamb is standing for them. Listen very closely. There is something that is quite clear in Scripture. For those 
of us who belong to Christ. The experience of God's wrath, God's judgment, is not in our future because it has been experienced in the past. And because we are past it, we are to boldly engage the world. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, and 9 to a group of people who are being warned about troubled times coming, he says to them, be hysterical, wring your hands, post. No. He says, be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and listen, love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation, for God has not destined us for wrath to judgment, but unto salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason that you are not destined for wrath for God's judgment is because it's been dealt with in your past through the sacrifice of Christ. Paul says in Colossians 2.14, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses and by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, Paul says, nailing it to the cross. Meaning what? Meaning that all of the wrath, all of the judgment that our sin deserved was received by Christ. So we have nothing left of God to experience but his mercy and his love. Here's the answer between who or what is standing between you and judgment, you and the end of the world. Jesus. Jesus is standing between you and judgment. Jesus is standing between you and the end of the world. But if you do not belong to Christ, his coming will and should now fill you with dread because the death he died for you has been rejected by you and you therefore have nothing to stand between you and judgment. Nothing to stand between you and the end of the world. And it is a fact it's coming. It is theologically inconsistent for me to celebrate Christmas and not anticipate the second coming. If I accept one, I have to accept the other. And when that second coming happens, it will be more terrible than any of us could ever imagine. John is being stretched to the limits of his language and imagination to communicate it to us. But it is a fact that Jesus and his mercy are sufficient for what is horrifically indescribable. Sufficient for it all. And so we must all turn to him before it's too late. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.